0: Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory podcast. On it, my co-host Sam and I, Dave, will sing classic soul songs. No, Sam and Dave will not sing classic soul songs. We're going to talk about legal theory. Uh, my co-host Sam Moyne and I are professors at Yale Law School, and we're, uh, we hold a, a little legal theory workshop on a podcast. Um, uh, so uh, this is our uh, third episode, um, and we're really excited about it.
1: David, this is... It could be an exciting one, and you know, definitely an emotional one. Over the summer, I, I wrote up a review of a a book uh, co-authored by Stephen Tellis, uh, 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 uh called Never Trump, and I, I'd say you know, it was a pan. Uh, it was definitely a pan of the larger movement of the Never Trumpers. The the book studied, and it turns out that uh, Steve Tellis is one of your good friends in the political science community. So. We thought we'd, you know, invite him on, uh, have a, uh, an encounter, uh, and maybe bury the hatchet by the end.
0: I, I, I'm really looking forward to this one. So um, without further ado, Steve Tellis. Steve Tellis is with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Steve.
2: Happy to be here.
0: So a little as, by way of introduction, uh, Steve is a professor at Johns Hopkins and is one of our foremost political scientists and public intellectuals. His book, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement, is the definitive book on the creation of the Federalist Society, the influence of the Olin Foundation, and in general, the rise of conservative lawyering and the conservative legal movement. He also has a terrific book on conservative efforts at con- criminal justice reform that I recommend extremely highly. And the book we're going to be talking about today, Never Trump, is a continuation of some of these themes. Um, it's also important to get an idea of Never Trump to kind of talk about another major theme in Steve's work. Um, I particularly love his book, *The Captured Economy*, not only because it cites me a lot, um, although that I like that too, um, uh, but because it lays in a really comprehensive case for the ways in which regulations across a number of spheres redistribute upward as well as slowing growth. This is about land use, intellectual property, occupational licensing, and financial reform or financial services uh, regulation. Um, it's The capture economy captures two of uh, TELUS's key innovations that we're also going to talk about today. The first one is the idea of kludgeocracy, which is the idea that the breakdowns in American politics have led to weird workarounds that work in the short term, but um, can result in a kind of suboptimal second, third, or fourth best public policy. And the second is the idea of libertarianism. So Steve came out as a libertarian, as a combination of liberal and libertarians. Yeah, um, uh, and which led to, with his co-author on the uh, captured economy, the creation of the Niskan Center, um, which is kind of the uh, think tank that we can think of as the intellectual home of libertarianism, where Steve is a fellow, and full disclosure, uh, so am I. Um, uh, uh, But we're here to talk about about never Trumpers.
1: Steve, I I also want to join uh, David in in saying thanks for joining us. Hard as it is to believe, since I wrote a somewhat, you know, cautiously critical review of, of the new book. I'm a huge fan. Uh, i uh, not only have I taught the conservative legal movement book, I've even read it carefully. Uh, <laughs> and, and I admire what you do. Could you maybe begin by, uh, you know, telling us about the new book, what, what you take yourself to have shown in it?
2: So the book does in fact, just to kind of go back a little bit before we go forward. Um, The book does really actually come out of my experience at the Niskanen Center. Um, And so one thing to say is libertarian is like one of the categories that I've used to explain myself and what we do. And we spend an inordinate amount of time at the Niskanen Center just trying to figure out how we want to describe what it is we do. So I've written pieces that describe myself as a competitive egalitarian. I've talked about liberal conservatism and i know david is interested at some point in talking about hans noel's work right and one of the things that intellectuals do especially at periods of ideological instability is to try to sort of inject new categories um, that try and draw people into affiliating with those categories rather than the inherited categories and that's why to some degree some of my history and the history of the center is about experimenting with how we want to describe these categories that cut across the existing lines and that, that generate, in some cases, policies that look aberrant from the point of view of the standard ideological categories that make sense within some of these new ones. So ordinarily, we've associated sort of moderation with incrementalism that feeds into some of what David is talking about, about Uh, kludgeocracy, right? Kludgeocracy is in some part a response to people trying to make incremental adjustments to inherited policy systems that then end up becoming incomprehensible, um, uh, ineffective, contradictory. And so our synthesis in some ways pushes us toward support for quite radical changes, but quite radical, but not on the liberal or conservative dimensions. Um, Now, okay, where does that all come to what we're talking about? So this partially comes out of the Niskanen Center um, that right after the 2016 uh, election, we started hosting this thing called the Meeting of the Concerned, which was a bunch of, um, certainly at that time, Republicans, who were looking around, who kind of thought that Trump was going to lose, which is a sub-theme of the book that Sam knows, right? They thought Trump was gonna lose and they they had a image of what they were gonna be doing in December. <laughs> that was different than what they ended up doing in December, right? They thought in December, lots of them that they were gonna constitute the clean team, right? The people who had not been soiled by Trumpism, and that in the aftermath of his humiliating loss, they would be brought in to kind of, you know, reconstitute the party and bring it back to something, right? That they had, that they thought this weird aberration of Trump had taken the party away from. Uh, and I went to some of these meetings and realized that this activity was interesting, right? Um, I had some issues with it, I had which we can get into probably later, but When I do my work, it's often I start out with a phenomenon in the world that looks interesting, and then I try and figure out what it's about, which is often the opposite of what people in social science do. They start with a puzzle in the literature, and then they look for a case to examine it through. And my general method is do the opposite. So to go back to the conservative legal movement book, um, that book actually started out very different. It started out as a comprehensive book about conservative efforts to mobilize against the activist state. And then the law turned out to be the area that for various reasons was the most interesting. And once I did that, I figured out what it was about, right? So chapter one of the book, which tries to put this in the context of the conservative legal movement book that puts it in the context of party change. We refer to some of Jack Balkan's kind of work in, in that, That all came after I figured out what the story was, right? So the Never Trump book is really, initially was just an effort to make sense of this phenomenon in the world of um, a bunch of um, part of this sort of larger party structure who had found their party drifting away from them, right? Or have been seized away from them. And only later did I, and me and Rob, figure out what that phenomenon in the world was really about, right? And so in that sense, this book is is especially not theory heavy. Um, I have a bunch of th- thoughts about what some of the larger theoretical implications are of that that I didn't necessarily want to laden this book down um, with. But I think, and we give a little bit of breadcrumbs in the book about what we think the larger implications of that are. But that was what the book was about. And only later did I think we come to conceptualize this book about um, that Never Trump is really about the defection of a particular part of modern parties, that modern parties have this professional elite cadre, in part because of the changes over time in the nature of the American state and the way that we, um, we do elections that require parties to have this professional elite cadre, and that gives them a certain power and authority, or in, in Andrew Abbott's term, jurisdiction. Um, and that what happened in 2016 was a kind of withdrawal of that jurisdiction, um, in retrospect. And the never-Trumpers are, for the most part, right, those, those people who um, had their jurisdictions stripped through, in part, again, we'll see there's variations of that. Lawyers are the most interesting example of that, but that's what I think the book is really about it It is
1: really accessible for sure, and I think that's you know a huge achievement um so we want to talk about substance soon, not just twenty sixteen on which you focus, but kind of the really contentious issue of of the role of never trumpers this this year. But I know David and I want to start with methodology um and I just note two facts and ask you to reflect on them. Um, the first is that you've kind of already acknowledged relative to say the conservative legal movement book that you're, you're a player in this, in this movement, in a sense, in, in a way that seems, um, you know, not disqualifying, but it seems like it, it raises questions about how you achieve proper distance on the phenomenon. And then there are the interviews. Now, you know, the interviews are central to your your earlier book that I've read as well and, and are, are a really great source. But what I wanted to ask you is, how does one control them? You know, I, 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 I recall this very nasty put down that Maureen Dowd uh, made to Judith Miller, who had said that, you know, Ahmad Chalabi just told me that there are WMD in Iraq and I wrote it down, to which Dowd replied, journalism isn't stenography. And, you know, one, one worry I I expressed, you know, again, cautiously in the review is that there's just a lot of airtime that Never Trumpers get in your book to characterize themselves. And I, I just, I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical than you seem to be about what they were doing, what their motivations were with their past in 2016. So could you talk about you know, your stance relative to them and your use of interviews methodologically?
2: Yeah, okay. So first of all, I do think, and I actually have a discussion to this at the beginning of the conservative legal movement book about the advantages of having contemporaneous documents as a check against people's memory. And that is the first best. Um, And I'm gonna come back to that because there's a little of that in the book. Right. Um, That is a check. Um, But this is doing, you know, what we're doing both in this book and to some degree in the prison break book that David talks about is I'm doing real time social science. Right. And so real time social science is inevitably in the world of the second best. Right. And it's not in the world of the second best because I'm a crappy social scientist, it's in the world of the second best. Because that is, in fact, the world that is, in fact, available to me right now. Again, when one of Sam's students comes back in ten or fifteen years, and there's lots of archival material. Although, again, doing doing archival work with where all the communication is through Slack channels or whatever is a is a more complicated world than people historians know all about this. Um, so you Know, first of all, I'm owning that it's second best, so I'm just going to say that that's not a function of my quality as a social scientist, it's about what's available for studying the phenomenon under investigation. Now, part of being a good interviewer, right, is not just being a stenographer, right, it's pushing people, right? Um, that is you know, and it's pro, you know, probing and prodding, and that kind of thing. And to some degree, checking people's memories against one another is an alternative to being able to use um, uh, archival material. So just to say on that, I really want to go too deep into the methodology. But we do have an example in the national security chapter, which is probably the one that's of most acute interest to Sam, where we did get access to the internal email chain of the first of the anti-Trump national security letters, right? So we got to see when they were inviting people to um, join this, this letter, we got to see what they were saying to each other, right? And I think that is actually pretty good contemporaneous check, at least in that dimension, that it turns out they were saying the same thing to each other that they were, now, they may have also been experiencing false consciousness or something, right? And have had motivations and it may be this is the language they talk to each other about their interests on. That may, But it, that is itself a phenomenon in the world, right? The language that people use to communicate to each other about their interests, in part, constitutes their interests, right? That is how people construct interests, is they construct interests through language and through communication within, within movements or groups. Um, but at least there, I think that's a kind of internal... Check. Unfortunately, like lots of those other things, were not available for some of the other, and will be later on. So this book is openly, I think, a um, a first cut at the um, at the phenomenon. And the question then is, compared to what, right? Um, you know, if you've gotten a different account of what these people's motivations were, then you know the same methodological standards. Apply to your alternative account, and you know the one thing I'll say is, at the minimum, I did a bunch of interviews to try and get at people's underlying motivations. And then you know, if you've got some alternative set of their motivations, then you have to bear the weight of that alternative methodological account, right? Especially if you're just imputing motivation and the absence of actually having done investigation, which is one of the things that we bounced around in our uh, in our discussion in the New Republic, right?
0: I want to ask, I've got two questions um, that kind of fit you fit this book and the broader TELUS project into uh, theories of political science. And so the first one I want you to ask, enter or talk about is how the book and the broader project fit with the UCLA School of Parties. So uh, for those in the audience, uh, those people argue that contrary to what people like John Aldrich have argued, political parties are best understood as places where factions argue about what the policy should be and who the candidate should be. Um, And elections, general elections, and the need to win play a constraining role in this kind of ongoing negotiation between different groups that are constitutive of the party. Uh, You have like another character here, which are the experts um, that don't play a role in their models. So could you talk a little bit, are you adding to them, challenging them or
2: what? I've used a lot of the UCLA model, and I think I should do a shout out to David Carroll's book, Party Position Change, which I think is a fantastic, really important, under, I think, still underestimated in how important that book is. And I use that a lot in um, Prison Break in particular, right, where we argue that um, party position change pivoting off of Carroll is much more common when you have issues that are not coalitionally anchored, right? So just to get I'm, I'm going to roundabout get to your, your your question, right? The What Carol basically argues is parties have two categories of positions. They have one set of positions that they have because parties are coalitions of high demanders. And they have those positions because there's a small number of people who are sitting around the table who've essentially made a kind of blood oath with one another. And they've all agreed to support each other's fundamental existential issue in exchange for everybody else supporting there. So it's kind of a mutual non-aggression pact kind of, um, uh, agreement and they, they're going to keep those positions regardless of how electorally popular they are. Right. So like gun owners are around that small table in the, um, you know, and no matter how many school shootings there are, the Republican party is still going to keep its position on guns because it's coalitionally anchored. But parties also have lots of positions that are opportunistic, that they took for electoral advantage. In some cases, they're taking them to compensate for their otherwise unpopular coalitionally anchored positions. And parties have a lot more room to adjust those positions. And there's a very different kind of politics that goes into that. And that's where some of this class of actors that you reference are important, right? The intellectuals, the scribblers, the policy analysts, right? Because they're in a position to convince their co-partisans that their inherited positions are either electorally non-optimal or not the best way to act on their underlying normative values. Um, And so those ideologues Have a particular influence outside of that domain of um, coalitionally anchored positions, and in our telling, which I'm still trying to figure out how it relates to Hans Noel, who's who's that's the next question. So, just I'll give you a chance. So, I'm I'm right that um, one of the things they also do right is they do some of that work of making that coalitional pact um, sanctified. Right. And this is where, so Noel kind of dumps on the idea that what ideologues do is they simply come in after a coalitional pact and sort of wave their hands over it and, you know, get some, you know, incense and then make it seem, you know, beautiful and sanctified. But I do think that's the kind of thing they do. I'm still trying to figure out, Noel has an account where the ideologues come first, right? Where they do this work of creating new syntheses that then make certain kinds of coalitional arrangements make sense. Um, And I think there's probably some of that both, or it's an iterative process, right? Um, But that's, you know, that's a very important role. And the other thing, of course, is once parties then make a shift to a particular ideological position, that ideological class becomes a kind of praetorian guard around that ideological category, right? And so in the book, we have a lot of discussion about um, them as sort of defining the, the, the distinction between um, the kosher and the trafe, you know, the raw and the cooked, right? That's what they, that's a large part of what they do. And what's interesting in this book, and one way I think about this book is, is um, this is the point where that previous understanding of what the party was kind of cracked, And the ability of that Praetorian Guard, now I'm probably mixing a metaphor here, right? That Praetorian Guard to protect that inherited definition of the ideological definition of this party came unwound. But of course, those ideologues, you know, have a, and this is where I think Noel is right, those ideologues have an independent source of legitimation or authority, which means that they have a lot committed. Right. And for also for professional reasons, have a lot committed to that inherited ideological category, which means they they aren't just kind of always chasing after where those underlying coalitional dynamics or electoral dynamics move them. And that's partially why you see this category of people who then are continuing to fight, even though they're a lot of those party dynamics are going in another direction.
0: So I want to like push the Noel point a little bit and kind of um so just. Uh, for listeners, his basic idea is that uh, that ideological groups, in his case, his example is newspaper editorial boards, bind together issues and do so in a log rolling sort of way, and you kind of describe, you just described, um, uh, that then parties are a different way of organizing politics, but end up, uh, in, in our case, in American history, adopting. So the combination of abortion rights and social democracy appeared on editorial pages as a combined set of preferences before it became the platform of the Democratic Party and gun rights and uh, foreign policy interventionism or whatever else you want to associate with it or low taxes uh, associated with the Republican Party coalesced on editorial pages as well. But the the big thing for him is that the ideologues are separate and come first. And your ideologues uh, are party defined. They are they rise up inside party coalitions. And there are some cross-party things, particularly in your foreign policy examples. But for the most part, the intellectuals are not ek- outside of the party. They are inside of the party. They may be factions, they may be elements of the party, but they're inside of the party. And so do you think that that's right? That um, the in describing 2016 or 2020, the idea merchants of the world from professors to take merchants to uh, think tankers are party defined um, and is it best to think of them as a faction of parties um, or are they flopping between parties or what? So like, what explains your party bounded view of it? So the never Trumpers were notably not Democrats.
2: Yeah, so this is where we are reaching the limits of what we can do in a podcast without a blackboard behind us. because <laughs> it would be really useful to try and explain this uh, the point I'm about to make in graphical terms. Um, but a faction. So I have a piece that's coming out in National Affairs that draws on, but it's I think dope. At, everyone should read it. Um, yes, that's gonna be coming out in um next week that extends on extends the argument, but I think actually improves the argument. Um again with Rob Saldine that come of the conclusion of the book. And factions, I think, are distinguished from these professional categories, right? So when you think about factions you're thinking about a party as being defined by organizationally distinct, um, mostly ideologically categorized groups that have the capacity for collective action, right? And when you think about these professional categories, which make more sense in a mostly homogenous party, right, that is a non factionalized party, it's better to think of there being a, a core of you know the elected officials and the um, the sort of policy high demanders, surrounded by it's like a you know one of those gumballs that's got layers, right? And they you know the outer layer are these service providers, right? So in terms of faction, the best way to think about this, the easiest faction to understand is the one I, I associate Sam with, right? You think of it as sort of the DSA squad, AOC, you know, that that kind of faction in the sense that they really are doing most of what we associate historically with what factions do. They create alternative ideological formations. They create alternative sources of policy ideas, right? They create new ways of raising money, new ways of organizing activists. They participate in party primaries, as they have very much in this last uh, cycle, right? And they distinguish themselves as kind of, just to go back to, you know, one of Sam's favorite terms, frenemies, right? They're frenemies with the rest of the part in the party, right? They're both competing with other parts of the party, in this case, sort of the mainstream democratic, which used to, be, which used to think of itself simply as the party, right? Um, and in the process, they're actually encouraging factional formation in other parts of the party in reaction, right? So one of the arguments that we make in the forthcoming piece is the increasing factional organization of what you can just for shorthand call the DSA faction will make other parts of the party also have to organize in factional ways if only in defensive right so if you have a large number of african american members of congress who associated themselves with the mainstream part of the democratic party and suddenly they're like oh my god i could get challenged by you know by somebody associated with the squad Right. I need collective action. I, we need to all band together to protect ourselves against that. That creates then factional organization. Right. So when you think about this, right, that's what we mean just to get our terms straight. That's what you mean by a faction as opposed to sort of a professional cadre. Now, one possibility is each of these factions will increasingly have their own relatively distinct professional cadre right like the dsa faction will have a set of campaign professionals that will be very distinct from that of the rest of the party they'll have their own intellectuals their own policy providers their own financial you know fundraiser bundlers whatever right um but and so what what used to be a a sort of um professional class for the party as a whole will eventually become a professional class divided by these factional definitions to a greater or lesser degree. Was that even responding to your question? <laughs> no,
0: but it was interesting. So it's fine. Okay. Uh, Sam, you want to shoot?
1: Sure. So, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about method and, and, and theory now. I think we should turn, before we have a, a kind of emotional dispute about 2020, to the substance of, you know, the account of the never-Trumpers in 2016, which is what the, what the book's about. Um, so I get, you know... I, I respect totally first that, um, you've got, you've got a huge range of people in this book. Um, and part of your point is disaggregation, not just aggregation. Um, and I, I just want to state for the record that I, I accept totally that some number of these folks were principled actors and really meant what they said. Um, you know, and I respect some, some of the folks that, you know, Jacob Levy at Niskanen, you know, I think the, these are people who really do care um about the survival of democracy and so forth. What what I want to ask though is, you know, you um, just to put out my the original claims I'm making in the New Republic review about about 2016. Um because it's there I just thought you, you know, um you you bought the rhetoric and rationalization of some of the others never trumpers a little too easily. So, I agree um, I think that's brilliant what you've just said, that this this movement is really about a taboo. It's really about holy and impure and a line that's constructed. Um, and that's a really helpful way of putting it. But it also gets at some of the irrationality um, of because that's what studying that kind of line has to involve. And what I, I think you miss is first the prior record of many of the never Trumpers. Um, In 2016, they're being directly challenged, they're being directly blamed, both on the foreign policy and the economic front, for, you know, failed policies. And um, they don't want to lose power. Maybe there's some thought about principle and, you know, the survival of democracy in the mix. But, you know, your, your own, you know, you know, just theoretical remarks just now seem to you know, lead us in a different direction towards the, you know, grubby scramble for power. And then there's the claim about, you know, just how sickening Trump was and is to the never Trumpers. That is like a statement about a taboo. It's about like disgust. And you're you're completely uncritical about it in the book. You just report the statement and say, what really matters to these people is that they were nauseated but i you know so on on both counts can we get into the substance of 2016 and um explain how the high theory is is presenting an adequate account of the behavior of some of these never trumpers in 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 that critical moment
2: all right so on the first part um I do think it's important to recognize that your presentation of the argument in the book is not actually what we did in the book. Um, That um, if you even look at the deep organizational structure of the book and what theory we do present, we have this whole argument, again, derived from Abbott, about jurisdiction, right? And that clearly, if you want to understand, and we do say, look, self-interest And these feelings of repulsion or normative right are mixed together because that's how human nature works, right? Um, Those are not, you know, no, no, no person experiences those as cleanly divided, right? I don't, you don't. I'm not sure I have an adequate account of David's psychology, but (laughs) I imagine that's also in David, right? I barely acknowledge Um, the
0: difference, so it's fine.
2: (laughs) So the so again, a lot of the point of the book is that Trump was challenging these people's jurisdiction, right? And so when we look at the Iraq war, right, and Trump's sort of active attack and saying, you know, again, obviously, totally, you know, just made up like everything Trump does, right, about where he was on Iraq and where everyone else was, right? um, That got read partially as him challenging their jurisdiction over the expert work of national security and the Republican party. And I think that's the best way to account for the self-interest here, right? If you want to give an, a, a self-interested account, which is always an incomplete account of things, and this is why I'm, I'm for example, not a rational choicer. I think that's an element, but they have a really good account of what's going on. You have to be able to do these things simultaneously And on the other hand, I do think, at least with the national security people, when you saw what they were saying to each other, right, they did experience this as feelings of repulsion, right? Again, there's a great line by David Frum about, you know, that this was just something they just couldn't eat, right? They literally, I mean, they expressed it in those Levi-Straussian kind of ways, right? Now. And so I think when you want to give a story of what's going on, which we try and do in the book, it's this mix in all these different areas of both a structural account, right? Which I think is not inconsistent with your insistence that there's some self-interest here, right? And an account about their construction of what's moral or normative or acceptable, right? Um, And there's this conception about what a party is, right? And this is where we say in the beginning that these people thought that not only were they obligated, but they were authorized to do something. They thought their job was to, again, to protect their party against what they, th- what they thought were interlopers or you know infection from the outside. They, again, that's where what you need to understand is how did they come to believe that that was their job? No, I I am with you on that, but what what, what
1: I'm asking is wh- wh- when do we get the, you know, moment to ask the critical question? Well, why is the Iraq war good and Trump nauseating? Why is Sarah Palin good? You know, Bill Crystal, you know, made her um career and advised her and Trump bad? I mean, the, if we don't ask those questions, how can we kind of do, do an analysis of the feelings they're expressing and the nausea they're, they're claiming to experience.
2: Well, so one thing just to, <clears throat> to um, think about the Sarah Palin thing for a second, right? Those two cases are not independent of one another, right? Um, that is, it's not, you know, we're not looking at recurrence. We're looking at two observations that influence one another. And I think There is a degree to which Crystal, certainly David Fromm, right, saw that. And then they were like, you know, that's where they realized sort of what they were staring into, right? So their experience of Trump is conditioned by the previous experience of having played with fire with Sarah Palin and then seeing what that did and then partially wanting to insulate the party from doing it again. So I think that I've got an easy answer about right i think that's an apple and orange that's an apple and apple comparison right iraq war in this is a is not an apple and apple comparison right um you know they they thought the you know i you know i supported the iraq war not back then nobody gave a crap what i thought right and now i didn't know i wasn't writing on it i, wasn't, I would you know, have had we known each other yeah i mean you know so but i thought for what i in retrospect you know, I still think I I, are understandable reasons. And there were lots of people um, who were liberals who at the time, right. Who now want to give a different account of where they were, but I'm just going to own it. Right. I own why I thought that was right. And um, now I do think that's also conditioned some of their thinking on national security too. There's a a great line by LA Cohen that says the Iraq war sort of sobered up a lot, you know, that they had gotten a little drunk on a particular, Kind of understanding of American foreign policy that then has affected things later on, um, and so anyway, so I I I don't know that that is necessarily like a um, a kill shot against the argument here, right? Certainly, the the Palin one is not because I do think that explains a lot of their reaction to Trump. Okay, you know we could dwell on this till the cows come home, but it's critical that we
1: we we you know, push forward four years while while acknowledging that, you know, um, that's not what the book's about. And that, I, again, I'm just sitting in an armchair trying to assess the real importance of the never-Trumpers, which given their failure in, in 2016 does seem to, you know, come to rest in 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 a debate we should have about 2020. Now, I, I want to concede first that I probably lean... Too strongly on the suggestion that th- that they were a big factor in spelling the doom of Bernie Sanders' candidacy. Although um, one of my non-armchair DSA friends, Matt Carp, has done an interesting analysis of the primaries uh, in Jacobin magazine. I hope, which I hope you read, which which suggests pretty strongly that there's there's kind of a never trump equivalent in the electorate and that if we do a fair postmortem um we shouldn't just focus on african american voters in south carolina but we should see that a lot of ex-republican or uh, um what he calls halliburton liberals um have helped swing the the outcome towards joe biden um but again, I don't want to rest any case about, you know, the baleful effects of the never Trump folks on what happened to Sanders. I would um, want to stress, I did say in the piece, and I would want to invite your comment um, that the never Trumpers have played a big role in in establishing with some kinds of Democrats, the boundaries of policy credibility and That's been a big achievement in my view and in the Trump years. And, you know, it it may be too early to have this, you know, showdown because what what we really have to see is, you know, what are the boundaries of policy credibility if Biden indeed wins? But that would be like to me where I would want to make the case about the, let's say, real historical effects of the Never Trump Movement. So do you just want to comment on... You know
0: whether there's a sequel in the offing? Can you lay out the argument just like two sentences for our listeners who have not necessarily read the pieces? Sure. So, um, just just to for background,
1: you know, Steve rightly, uh, understandably, hopefully, he's planning a sequel, restricts this account to 2016, uh, and I I try you know to shift uh, the the argument to include 2020 where I think. Um, in, in the last four years, the Never Trumpers have played a huge role. Let's note many of them were given promotions, um, especially those in journalism. Um, you know, commentary to Washington Post, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal to New York Times, so forth and so on. So in, in the opinion-making dimension of the argument, um, they've become much more central uh, than they were before. And arguably... Um, what we've seen in the last four years is a kind of rehabilitation of policy orthodoxy um, prior to Trump's challenge to it, as well as the left's challenge to it. Um, and, you know, that's that's also an argument about like boundary drawing, setting up taboos, um, naming extremes and keeping them at bay. It's It's just not an argument about the Sanders candidacy per se. It's, you know, it's an argument about beltway beltway orthodoxies. And I guess all I'm saying is we can have the Sanders discussion, but I think it, you know, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on what success in policy credibility the never Trumpers have had in the last four years since your book ends.
2: Yeah. So that's about 14 questions. True. So let's see if I can try and, answer any of them. Just to go back, way, way back, um, to the Halliburton liberals, um, uh, point. So it's definitely the case that, um, if you look at how the actual democratic party is constituted, right. And this is one of the arguments for why we are making a prediction of a more factional future is the American system is just not designed, I think, over time, especially the Democratic Party, is not designed to be an ideological party, right? Um, certainly in the way that conservatives have become, it's a much more shaggy, inherently residual category, right, that includes, you know, African Americans, right, who our argument is, and we have a piece that's coming out in this and that looks particularly at, at criminal justice, right? But when you actually look at it from, you know, at African-Americans, they're much more heterogeneous than most people often talk about them. Right. Um, Especially on social issues. Um, They're all stuck in the Democratic Party because in a more deep in in a system with a more decent right of center party. You know what? You know, other you know, other countries have right of center parties. They get much larger percentages. Of ethnic minorities, and we don't because the Republican Party is what it is on race and whatnot. So we should just stipulate that. So they're all stuck. They're all stuck in the Demo- Demo- Democratic Party. And therefore, there's a very big part of the African American community that acts on their more, on their less left of center opinions, mainly by how they behave inside of Democratic primaries, right? They just they act by supporting whoever the rightmost or centermost candidate is, right? Um, and that's a really important part of explaining why the Democratic Party looks the way it does. It's not the only one. It's also the fact that there are lots of middle class professional um, uh, white people, right? um who have uh, less redistributive um, views on economics that you can't have a majority Democratic party without them either. Now, the argument, especially of the piece that's coming out, is a lot of those lines between those pieces that float around the Democratic Party have been inchoate up until now, but that we're going to see those lines becoming much more defined, right? And again, there's no more way to define that than when you start seeing people primarying people, right? Then you know that though you know that that whatever sort of agreement that's been made through has broken down and now you have much more organized Cory Bush i mean incredible and that's Cory Bush is a good example of that right and that's why our, our argument is the future is that that DSA faction is going to become an institutionalized but not majority faction of the party right and this is where i do think A lot of people who imagine that somehow Sanders was going to win and take it all over and and it was going to turn, you know, the Democratic Party into a socialist movement party are just making a mistake about the kind of party that the Democratic Party can be. Right. And if it tried to do that, it would it would become Corbynist. It would become structurally incapable of winning power. Now, we can have a disagreement about that. And um, but I do think that's you know, that would be where, what would happen if you tried to turn it into a movement party. Um, and that's the real reason why the left has been, you know, it, it's, its power has been stopped, right? Because at least in our argument, there's just not the demand for that. That's a minority demand, but it could be a very structurally powerful minority demand that would then have to make a kind of agreement or settlement with the other parts of the party right and that will probably come after we have more of these moments of testing the limits of their power inside the party that that will you know it'll be it'll be like you know um post-conflict negotiation right we will have a war that'll have demonstrated what each side's power position was and then we'll have a treaty and that'll determine how those sides sort of deal and So that probably is a long answer to maybe only not quite a question you asked. But I think that's part of what's going on here. And that's the real fundamental motor, right? I can tell that story entirely without mentioning never-Trumpers, and I just did. And I think the fact that I can tell that story with having to mention them makes me think that they're largely unrelated to this fundamental phenomenon.
0: So I want to... Kind of ask a question that's related to this that is um, uh, that kind of challenges both of you. So um, the there was something inherent in Sam's criticism of Steve and Steve's response to Sam that there was a that political parties were a thing to which out the question was could interlopers influence them? So were the Never Trumpers coming into the party and defeating a legitimate part of the coalition, um, or were they not? Um, and, and Steve's response, they were not, also presupposed, I think, the functional, the idea that there are proper and improper members of uh, political party coalitions. Um, but that's not how American political parties work at all. American political parties imp- incorporate outsiders. We have open primaries. We have anyone can spend as much money as they want. Um, uh, the political party has... Formally very little control over who candidates are. Um, and the effect of this is that lots of groups from outside political parties come into them. And so to na- take two more notable, I think probably more important than never Trumpers moving over, would be Bernie Sanders, who's you know, not a member of a political party, but kind of brings a coalition into a political party, and Donald Trump, who notably was not a member of a political party, but created a coalition inside a party. And so the question I have, the question open for discussion, really, as far as I'm concerned, um, is as follows, but I'll let Steve go first because he's the guest, um, is, is this a good phenomenon in the sense of that, Are is the fa- openness of political parties like that you guys presuppose something that you want to support normatively? So many political parties around the world are in fact closed in meaningful ways. Um, uh, and the effect of that is generally to take this outside energy and push it into third parties. I advanced this in an article called things aren't going that well over there either, but it's the same idea here, which is that like, is it, would it be a better world if never Trumpers couldn't flee the Republic or, or, uh, you know. Alternately, like the Republican vote, you know, formerly Republican voters in Greenwich couldn't influence the Democratic Party or Bernie Sanders. Um, would that be a better world with more concentrated political parties, or is a more factional political party system that's of the way kind of uh, Steve Channeling that Grossman discusses about Democrats um, a, 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 a good normatively? And so you guys are saying kind of making a claim about dimensions that's, an, uh, I think, a positive claim or positive ish or something. Um, uh, But would you defend this proposition as a normative thing? Would would it be better if political parties membership or the political party organization was able to control its membership a little more closely?
2: Yeah, so I would say there's a third option. There's like positive normative and then there's just motivated cognition which is probably combines both of them. So maybe both of me and Sam's uh, positive uh, account has some degree of motivated cognition. Or um, wish fulfillment uh, associated with it. Um, so one part of the argument that I'm making is, you know, we're the only major political system in the world that is as closed to third parties as we are. Right. So you know, the old we used to think Duverger's law meant that first past the post. Um, systems led you toward two parties, but we're in fact the only country that, that's true. And my account of that, which is not complete, is part of that has to do with the fact that our unsatisfied grievances are not geographically concentrated, right? So we in the paper, we give an example. That's not the only way, right? But one of the ways you get around that is in, you know, in Scotland, right? You have a, you have a concentrated grievance and they can win in, in, first-past-the-post system um, under the, again, that's not the only one, right? There are ideological um, categories that are able to win in first-past-the-post systems, but at least in ours, nobody's figured out how to win with a fundamentally ideological, unsatisfied grievance, right? And one of the things, and what that means is we deal with these unsatisfied grievances by processing them through the parties, right? Because most actors either are willing to accept that they're sort of marginal and whacked out like the green party people. They've got their own weird motivations, but they don't even have a fundamental theory about how they're going to end up attaining power. Um, And I think they're best explained by some sort of internal organizational maintenance motivation um, that we don't have to get into. But so, yeah, so outsiders are constantly having, realizing their only alternative is to pick a party and try and, um, uh, battle it out through that. Right. And I think that's one thing you've seen with sort of the DSA types, especially in the aftermath of sort of failed left-wing party activism, nadirism, all that kind of stuff, right. That they've decided they're, they're going to fight it out inside the democratic party. Um, and then they're trying to figure out what does that mean? I think that this, my factional framework, is a better way to think about what the stable equilibrium they might get to is, right? It's not that they're going to take over the party and become like this hegemonic force in the party, but that they will be a stable coalition partner, um, or more or less stable in the way that I'm talking about here. I think the Trump thing is a little different, right? I do think, and this may be where Sam and I would actually agree Um is that there really is a good argument, and this is probably gonna be my next book, right? That, you know, underneath the surface, the actual voting composition of the Republican Party has drifted from where its um, coalition of policy high demanders is, right? And that's one way to explain why you had a whole bunch of other candidates in the Republican primary who all reflected the previously existing economic orthodoxy. Um, because there were lots of ways the party had constructed to lock people into that. We talked about that in the book, about the phenomenon of the Coke primary, which was designed to make all the candidates show up at events and more or less have to say the same thing about, you know, that, that they wanted to keep zombie Reaganism, right? Um, and what Trump's insight was, is that the voters had 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 already drifted away from that, right, that there was unsatisfied but not organized um, dissatisfaction with that package, right, and that what Trump was able to do in a way, it was kind of a form of sort of partisan arbitrage, right? He was able to go and buy the underbought asset of these underorganized but real sort of you know interests or in within the Republican Party, right, um, and that. That's really what he was able to do is to aggregate those unsatisfied interests of Republican Party voters and mobilize them against the underlying interest coalition in the party, if that makes sense. You know, I I
1: actually agree with much of what you said. It was it was very interesting. And, you know, David's question requires either a counterfactual or an international comparison, whereas what we know about our America is that if you're an outsider to a party, you have to enter it and struggle for its future. You know, the, the only place I'd maybe differ is I just think, you know, the, the, there, there, there's more of, of a, you know, a runway for the left to, to take over the democratic party than you, you you seem to think. Let me just ask one final question. It's, you know, it, it is actually a real question. Um, uh, But, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek -cheek too, which is that even while we had our little, you know, fracas in in the New Republic, um, I I couldn't help but notice that um, many, many never-Trumpers, including, you know, some at the very center of your book, um, basically said they agreed with my account of their role in 2020. um, And is... You know, it would be easy to conclude that, you know, even though it wasn't a laudatory account, it did give them a lot of credit, uh, and we all like to hear we're important. But um, it's interesting that in in the process, they all let's say confessed openly that it was indeed their goal to have a big impact on the Democratic Party, and. Notwithstanding your earlier account of the Democratic Party, unexplained in what you said before, is that a lot of Democrats have embraced the never-Trumpers. And we need to explain that, you know, welcoming attitude. So any final thoughts?
2: Yeah. So, one, I do think, you know, what you were suggesting that, you know, you gave a flattering you know, at least in terms of their actual influence, it's not surprising they would be like, yes, I was very influential, right. right? Fair enough. Sure, right? I mean, they're able to say, yeah, your argument was that they were influential, but malevolent, right? And, you know, they're probably happy to say, yes, influential, right? And forget it and not pay attention to malevolent. And I do think that, first of all, There is an area where I probably do at least overlap, if not agree with Sam, that one influence of the never Trumpers has been probably to create more emphasis in the larger discourse on how aberrant or abhorrent um, Trump is individually and to center that into the discourse, right? As opposed to Thinking about you know what were actually problematic elements of the inherited political economy of the United States that did you know that did create an unsatisfied coalition for him to appeal to right and I think that's where now I have a different theory than Sam does about what the political economy that would in fact um, make a candidates like Trump less attractive, but that is I do think a fundamental um, blind spot of the kind of people who are around Never Trump. But I do think that actually, just to go way back to what we were talking about before, I think that's actually in some ways revelatory of how important the repulsion with Trump was for them, right? That that really was a fundamental motivation for them, which they've tried to impress on others. And that other dimension of thinking about what the fundamental problems with American political economy are have, as a result, had somewhat less space, and you know what, that is, in fact, a lot of what we actually do at the Center is try and sketch out, and we have a big new um, uh, you know policy paper coming out that's trying to do that, and we're trying in a way to get those people who we associate with Never Trump. To actually think about how to reconstruct that political economy in a way that's consistent with what I think of as liberalism—a liberalism that's distinct from the, the left, right—but that in its own way is 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 radical and reforming, and that that's the only way to actually create um, to dry up the um, the swamp that sort of that sort of draws in characters like Trump, and I think that's true in lots of other countries as well, right, that that's where, you know, and again, this is why I associate myself as a kind of radical Keynesian, right? That's what Keynes recognized in the 30s and 40s was you needed a radical reforming liberalism to contain both the left and a sort of brown uh, kind of right.
0: Well, uh, that was terrific. I just wanted to thank Steve and, uh, and thank you all for, li- for listening into the podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you, thank you, David and uh, and Sam. Thank you, Steve.